0: and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Roth Taylor. COVID has shaken up everything and a lot of us can't wait to get our lives back. In the last couple of weeks with the promising vaccine trial results, it look, feels like we can finally see the end of the tunnel. But just what is going to be at the end of that tunnel? Will it be pretty much like the old world or will things have changed forever? Joining me today is thinker, journalist and author of a new book, 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. Farid Zakaria. Hello Farid. Hi there. You're in the US right now aren't
1: you? I'm in New York City, yes.
0: How long do you give Trump before he admits defeat?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think he's going through the seven stages of, of, of grief or whatever that is, you know. There's first there's denial, then there's anger, then there's rage, then there's acceptance. In fact, I think what he's doing is always with Trump, you can't tell whether it's part genius Part madness or, you know, part kind of just intuition, because what he's doing is building up a very powerful base of support that is fueled by the grievance that this election was stolen from him that keeps him at the center of the Republican party it keeps him at the center of the of the country it fuels the you know gives the impetus for what is surely going to be his run again for the presidency in 2024 so it's it's brilliant politics it it has this the small side effect of shredding every democratic norm institution and sense of legitimacy that the country has but for Trump that doesn't matter you know that he's the ultimate narcissist uh, anything you know he can he, the whole society can be destroyed as long as he does better out of it all
0: is it right to talk about a coup yet? Or are we not that stage yet?
1: Oh, I think it's absolutely fair to describe what Trump is trying to do in terms of the intentions as a coup. It is an attempted coup. And I would say partly because of Trump's incompetence, um, partly because the case is so weak, uh, it will fail. But there's no question what he is attempting to do is to subvert democracy and to overturn a free and fair election. I think that's a fair definition of a coup. It's just going to fail. Hence, I say an attempted coup.
0: Nonetheless, it has felt like a light at the end of the tunnel for many of us, Joe Biden's victory. But you've written about America's anti-statist mentality and this widespread belief that government is an obstacle, not an enabler. How much will Biden really be able to do to stem the pandemic when he starts work in January? Look, uh,
1: the Anglo-American world has always had this uh, this tendency, and Britain and the United States more even than the other Anglophone colonies like Canada and Australia for complicated historical reasons. So you know it well. There is a deep anti-statist tradition. It is born of a kind of sense of individual liberty and privacy and things like that. But um, great leaders have always been able to work, um, to, to manage, to achieve some kind of collective efforts uh, in spite of this. Uh, In the United States, it's more difficult because there's the crazy quilt patchwork of center state and local government. But what I point out in the book is, you know, Franklin Roosevelt was able to do it. Lyndon Johnson was able to do it in his own way. Ronald Reagan was able to do it. Even Obama, with something like Ebola, was able to get a 68-country coalition together. He was able able to get the center state uh, localities to all get on board. You know, part of what it takes is a a real dedication to government, an understanding that this is a noble profession, that it's hard, that you have to work at it every day. Part of it is the legacy of Reagan and Thatcher, um, you know, which said government is not not the solution; government is the problem. That's I quote Reagan in the book. But part of it is uniquely Trump who really views the presidency as a reality TV show, you know, in other words, all he has to do is issue tweets, and that is government. So I think the fact that we'll get somebody who actually believes in government and understands how it works, uh, will will it will make a big difference. It's not just an atmospheric change.
0: There was, in Britain last week, much talk of a green industrial revolution, although some people noticed that the budget for that was about the same as the boost in defence spending that was announced the day after. So we're not entirely convinced by that. But what do you think about Biden's commitment to the climate crisis? Is he going to be able to do very much?
1: One thing you should all, always understand about the defence budget is, unfortunately, one of the reasons it, is, it, 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 it always goes up is that it is the one non-controversial jobs program in America. The defense budget is is scattered throughout the 50 states, and therefore, you know, the largesse is, is uh, scattered throughout the 50 states, and both sides agree on it. So part of what is going on here is this is a, this is a, a secret jobs program masquerading as a defense budget. On the Green New Deal, the Green uh, Jobs Plan, or call it what you will, look, um, there's a lot of very good stuff in it, and there's a lot of uh, real important and large investments in new technologies. I think on that side, there's nothing I, I would fault in Biden's plan. The challenge is this: in order to get serious about a green future, you also need a carbon tax because you can s- subsidize and incentivize people to do the good, the right thing. You also have to disincentivize them to do the bad thing. You know, this is one of the points I make in the book is that you you cannot achieve this without using the simple mechanism that any free market economist will tell you is the most powerful. You will get more of that which you subsidize. You will get less that which you tax. We have been unwilling to, to do the latter. And it's just madness because the only way we will get lower CO2 emissions on a, you know, a substantial sustained basis is if we if we tax it in some way, and of course the tax only recognizes that when we spew carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, when we pollute the thin layer of atmosphere uh, the surrounding the, the planet Earth, we are in—we are, uh, you know, undergoing costs. We are piling costs onto the system. Which so, so the carbon tax is, in a sense, just a recognition of what economists call these negative externalities.
0: Let's talk about the return to normality that we're all longing for. For those people who've lost their jobs, it won't return for a while. Do you expect a surge in activity and spending as the effect of the vaccines kicks in? I mean, will we all go out and party like it's like it's 1920?
1: I think we will. And I think it's a very good analogy because as you know, in the book, I point out that the, the last time we had a great pandemic, the influenza, the Spanish influenza, what succeeded the Spanish influenza and World War One was the Jazz Age. You know, I mean, in New York alone, there were a thousand speakeasies and there were speakeasies, of course, are illegal bars because alcohol was prohibited in the United States and still you had a thousand bars. So I think there will be, there's no question there is going to be a certain amount of pent-up energy and pent-up spending that comes back. There will, however, be A permanent shift in the way we socialize. Uh, So a part of it is going to be crowded bars, I think, will not come back instantly because people will be worried. I mean, you don't know if everyone is vaccinated and there will be some of those concerns. But the larger issue, of course, um, is that we, ha- we are seeing the rise of digital life in a, in a fully formed way. That's the big difference between the 1920s and now. In the 20s, if you wanted to get back to work, you had to go to an office. If you wanted to get back to, to entertainment, you had to go into a theater. Today, we have options which didn't exist before. So what we will end up with is a hybrid future, I predict. Um, we will use these new technologies but there is a deep, deep lo- urge, uh, longing in human beings to be social. You know, Aristotle says man is a social animal, uh, and that is why he is fulfilled in a polis, and a city. I think that hardwiring isn't going to go away just because of Zoom or Microsoft Teams.
0: I sometimes wonder how many speakeasies there are in cities like London that we don't know about. (laughs) It's quite fascinating (laughs) to think of what's happening illegally under the surface. But young people have been hit particularly hard, obviously, in terms of job losses and education. Even if you go to university now, it's not the same experience at all. Do you see that that disaffection taking a more radical form as things start to go back to normal, but they don't necessarily go back to normal for these people?
1: I think it is going to be a, a, a primarily a class phenomenon. My, my son is at university, and I can see that for people like that, you know, it's an inconvenience, it's awkward. Some of them really hate it, some manage with it, but they'll get back to, uh, uh, to life as usual. And part of it is that they, frankly, already, as you say, there's a, there's a certain amount of furtive socializing going on among the young. The big difference is not, I think, an age one, it's a class one. There's a whole group of us, Bankers, lawyers, accountants, businessmen, uh, journalists, professors, who are able to continue to work quite well using these new technologies. And, and we are about as productive. It's different, but we are able to certainly generate about as much income. For people who work in a, in, with their hands, to put it very simply, people who work in restaurants, hotels, retail malls, cruise ships, theme parks, for these people, this is the Great Depression. And for them, that work is not going to come back as easily as, as, as it, you might imagine, as fully as, as you might imagine. And most importantly, we know this the long term effects of being out of uh, work for more than three or four months, which all of them have been, are very uh, damaging. You have permanent losses in terms of your uh, lifetime income. So I think that unfortunately, the, the single biggest negative effect of this pandemic is going to be to widen inequality further exacerbate the class divide, create new forms of uh, inequality and resentment, and fuel a new politics of despair, which is in any case at the heart of so much of the political dysfunction in the Western world. So on this issue, I'm generally an optimist, but this is the area which I worry the most about.
0: Nonetheless, governments tend to ignore younger people because they don't vote in such large numbers, because they don't tend to own property, all these issues how will they make their voices heard if they do manage to make them heard
1: you know it's a, it's a very interesting problem the, the young seem politically very charged when you talk to them when you in, you know when you interview them when you poll them but you're right that they don't vote the the single most important act of democratic politics they do less than other age cohorts and i'm not sure i completely understand why i think you know you could attribute it to a certain laziness or a lack of passion i'm not i'm not sure i think it is also partly that they they believe that their vote is useless so uh, you know perhaps there's some element of they need to be motivated they need to be mobilized in a way i wonder whether this rise of populism is going to have that effect so you did see a very large youth turnout In the 2020 elections, not as large as you might have hoped, but in 2018 and 2020, young people voted much more than they have previously uh, in the United States. I don't know if the numbers are are similar in the last election in Britain, but we are beginning to see some of that. But I do think some of it is this sense of disaffection with the system that seems to have become very remote, very corrupt, uh, one that they can't participate. I, I notice when I talk to young people, when I go to college campuses, and when I used to pre-COVID, they would often talk about wanting to do good by, you know, working for a socially responsible business or joining an, an NGO, a nonprofit, or uh, maybe starting one, but never to go into government. That was they did not see that as a path to doing good for society, and I would often remark on that and. You would get the sense that they just didn't think that was a very effective way to use their time, that, that they would get bogged down in corruption and bureaucracy and politics. So, you know, it's a very different mood than the 1960s when people thought the way you changed society was through politics. Unfortunately, it still remains true. You know, the best NGO in the world cannot achieve the results that a small change in government policy can. So this is the challenge, I think, for the young to understand that no matter how, how cool and nifty and great these, uh, these other methods they're using. The only way you can change society in a permanent, durable way, the only way you can achieve scale, to use the kind of management uh, lingo, is through government, through politics.
0: Now we've seen just how much governments can intervene in the economy, especially in Europe. Will the return to normality be enough for people? Will they demand more? We talk about in Britain, the magic money tree, which was never supposed to exist. And then when COVID came along and there was a need for furlough, it did exist. Do you think that will increase people's expectations now?
1: Well, I, I talk about uh, in the book how this could be a kind of shift in attitude and a shift in, in phase. And at some level, I think it should be because you you have the reality of very depressed interest rates. You have the reality of countries with long time horizons, and particularly for things like infrastructure projects, which will pay for themselves because they will ride, they will increase productivity. And by, and of course, it's much cheaper to do things now than wait another ten or fifteen years for the infrastructure to get more even more decrepit than it is today. But I don't. I'm, I'm not sure it will lead to what some are speculating, and I think your your question implies, which is sort of universal basic income. I think there still is, and, and I am sympathetic to this, uh, there is a feeling that just giving people money is not the solution. What I say in the book is the government has found ways to incentivize work and yet provide benefits and support. And I think that's a very good model. You know, I mean, if you look at in Northern Europe, for example, places like Denmark, you have a, a a system that allows for a free market and that yet provides social supports so that people can take advantage of you know all kinds of different uh, government benefits that will train them, equip them, uh, give them the right healthcare, nutrition, retraining programs. It seems to me that's more the right direction to go in than to just write people a check because work is not just about income; it's about Dignity, it's about having a profession, it's about ma- making use of your time in a productive way, having a status in society, and all that requires jobs. I don't think you can just, you know, Marx and Keynes both had this fantasy that at some point people will just decide that they want to, you know, spend their life pursuing their hobbies uh, as long as their basic income needs are satisfied. I don't think that's what they do. They would would spend their time watching Netflix, getting depressed, getting drunk, and becoming quite socially unproductive.
0: So is this going to be the era of the social democracy? Because we saw a shift to right-wing populist governments in the late 2010s, obviously. Are we now due for a shift back?
1: It's a very interesting question, because who would have predicted that the effect of the global recession of 08-09 would be a a shift in the direction you pointed out? You know, after all, the the global recession was caused in large part by the irresponsibility of the private sector. But the effect was to make people feel very insecure, right? And then when they felt insecure, it turned out that at that moment, for for Peculiar reasons, they felt more culturally insecure, and they started to move right in cultural terms on immigration, on you know things like religion, on language, depending on what country you were in. It was and it happened everywhere. It it happened, of course, in the United States and Britain, but it happened in France. It even happened in Germany, but it happened in Turkey, in India, in Brazil, in the Philippines. So, I think the truth is we don't know. What we know is that this. This shift is going to produce a new, uh, you know, a, a new political movements and 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 uh, uh, and waves and undertows. Um, my guess is, look, I, what I can say is clearly the the most rational solution would be to move toward not just social democracy, but toward effective government uh, to understand that. Government, getting government right is very important. I say in the book, one of my lessons is it's not the quantity of government, but the quality of government that matters. So if you look at the countries that handled COVID-19 best, they are in East Asia, Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, even Hong Kong. Now, many of them have small governments as a percentage of GDP, but they're very effective. The, The agencies are independent. They appoint technocrats to them. They are well-funded. They have autonomy. You know, the places that have done it reasonably well in Europe, a place like Germany and Denmark, you see the same thing. Even Canada, you see the same thing. So the, the lesson is really that whatever the size of your government, you have to give it autonomy, agency, Enough funding. You have to respect it enough. You have to staff it with bright people. Th- those things, you know, that idea that that you can sort of demean, defund, disrespect government, and then somehow expect it magically in a pandemic to work very well and efficiently—that myth, I hope, is is has been busted. And I hope we will move towards some recognition that you know, look, we all you know, we are living in large, complex societies with complex problems you need government to steer you through
0: in some respects we got off lightly with this pandemic it kills but not at the rate of some recent novel viruses that fortunately didn't spread so far are we going to get lucky again
1: it's a great question and that is what i the the, the central part of the message of the book that i encompass in the first chapter we've been living a very risky life if you even think beyond the pandemic so first you're absolutely right we we got lucky this time You could imagine a more lethal pandemic. Now there is a balance, you know. The 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 way diseases work, Uh, a disease can't be can't kill too fast or too completely because then it doesn't spread. You know, if you think about Ebola, the reason Ebola didn't spread was it was too efficient at killing its victims. The flu, on the other hand, spreads very widely but doesn't kill, and so we don't worry about it that much. Uh, It doesn't kill a lot. This one. Proved to be somewhere in the middle. And in some ways, it has it's found a kind of sweet spot. It 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 is infectious enough that it that it can move very fast and it doesn't kill so much that it it, you know that its victims disappear. But it could get much worse. We could end up with something like SARS, which has, I think, five times the fatality of the coronavirus. Now, why are we getting these things? Because we've been living for the last 30 or 40 years in a kind of reckless, unplanned way. We are destroying natural habitats. Uh, of of animals like bats, so they come closer and closer to human habitats, and that's why coronaviruses have been spreading. the bats, the bats have lots of viruses. They they are living closer to us, so they live, for example, close to fruit farms. They infect pigs and chickens or pangolins, and that's how we they they, who in turn infect humans. But it goes beyond that. Think about the issue of global warming. We're spewing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere; Uh, it's raising temperatures everywhere. And then we incentivize people, at least in the United States and Australia and places like that, to live very close to forests. Uh, which almost always is the the trigger for a forest fire, is something like that. And remember, in the United States this year, we have had four of the five worst forest fires in the last 20 years that burned 5 million acres of land. That is the entire state of Massachusetts has gone up in flames in the United States. In Australia, it was fourteen hectare, 14 million hectares of land. Um, if you think about droughts, hurricanes, you know, the point, the image I use in the book is that it's like we're driving a very fast racing car. We don't want to put in airbags or seatbelts. We don't want to buy insurance. We don't want to put in shock absorbers. Every now and then the engine blows up and we patch it back together. But the next time we could drive off the cliff.
0: You've written about our insatiable appetite for meat and how it makes pandemics more likely. What's the link between meat and disease?
1: My guess is, my fear is, that the next pandemic we have will come out of factory farming. So what happens in factory farming is you take thousands and thousands of animals, uh, cows, chickens, herd them together in unspeakably unsanitary conditions. I'm sure people have seen some of the videos of these things. And then what happens is, you have genetically selected these animals for certain traits. So for example, chickens with bigger breasts, this is a Petri dish for viruses to grow. So what happens is the virus jumps from chicken to chicken, getting stronger and stronger. By the time you are at the 10,000th chicken, the virus is very strong. All you now need is for that to make that last hop, the virus to make the last hop from the chicken to the human being. And we are defenseless. And we are doing it, again, just just because we have this insatiable desire for huge amounts of meat, um, but we also want it cheap. We also want it in the most, frankly, bland uh, possible way. And so you put all that together and you have a very dangerous situation. Now, people will often point out to me, it's easy to talk about organic farming for a rich person because organic meat does cost, cost more. But I think what we have to do is to think about the way in which we do this in a, in, in it, so that it's more sustainable. There, there are many ways to make even factory farming much more safe, much more sanitary, to force uh, these things to be done in smaller quantities. And if you do that, you will mitigate a large part of the risk. You don't. You will not get rid of the risk completely. But that's how we have to think. We have to think about all these things as how do we make it more sustainable? How do we make it less risky? Because in each of these cases, the danger is this: the danger is that we get we get one of these events—a the, virus, a forest fire, a flood, or drought—that is unstoppable. You know. So it's in a sense you you're trying to mitigate against the the small chance of the really massive disaster.
0: Despite everything, you're quite an optimistic person. What gives you most hope about the last year and what the pandemic has taught us?
1: I think that it's taught us how resilient we are. I often feel this way that when people look at crises like 9-11 or the global financial crisis, what I'm always struck by is, you know, people do find a way to get on. Societies do find ways to adapt businesses find ways to adapt. Look, some go out of business and new ones have to come into being. If you think about it in the broader sweep of things, it's it's extraordinary how resilient human beings have been, right? I mean, we've been through ice ages and droughts and famines and fires and uh, pandemics and now global warming. And, you know, the, 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 the challenge is to take that resilience and to build on it, you know, not to be blind to the fact that you are taking on these risks. And, and you need to be conscious of them. There's a wonderful uh, Nobel Prize-winning biologist, Joshua Lederberg, whom I quote. He says the fundamental, the, you know, perhaps the most dangerous human arrogance is that nature is somehow benignly inclined towards us. That nature thinks fondly about human beings, but nature is really a series of chemical and biological equations, and It might well be that those series of biological equations produce a virus that can wipe out all human life, or can produce fires, droughts, and uh, and and uh, you know natural backlashes that imperil human life. That that, you know we we shouldn't assume that 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 somehow because in the past we have been resilient, we will be in the future. But we can take some some hope and solace from the fact that we are incredibly resilient. We can build on that resilience and make sure that, you know, human life goes on for a long, long time.
0: Farid, that was fascinating. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World is out now in Penguin. Join us tomorrow for another Bunker Daily. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider backing us on Patreon. You'll get an ad-free show, a shout out in the weekly edition and a mug and t-shirt. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. And if you're looking for merchandise for Christmas presents, check out our amazing range at podmarket.co.uk. Thanks for listening and check back in with us tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Roz Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofrenievich. and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.